This evening, we're going to be considering uh, just one of the Beatitudes. Um, Our sermon is going to come from Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. We'll read it in just a moment. Of course, the title Beatitude comes from the word for blessing. And so these are the blessings that Christ has for his people, those who have been brought in to the kingdom of God. We're only going to consider in depth the sixth beatitude, verse 8, but we'll read them all. Now, before I get into this, I want to make a little set the stage a little bit for where we're coming into Matthew. Most of us know Matthew relatively well, especially chapter 5 or the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you know Matthew well, you know that Matthew has divided the story of Jesus really into five parts. Jesus teaches... And then he does things. He teaches and then he does things. And that happens five times through the Gospel of Matthew. Well, here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're really getting to Jesus' first teaching. Just before this, in chapter 4, we're told about John. Excuse me, in chapter 3, we're told about John. John came preaching the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. John preached the kingdom is coming, and Jesus preached the kingdom has come. And so when he gets to Matthew chapter 5, when he preaches his first sermon, he's preaching what it means for the kingdom to come in people's lives, what it means for people to be reconciled to God, sinners through Christ, to God as their Father. Just before this, in chapter 5, he shows what the kingdom looks like in healings and exorcisms. And I was going to describe to it, to us, what it looks like for people under the reign of God. Now, in the Christian tradition, there have been two errors when they've read the Beatitudes. And they've both been put forward in various times, but they can generally be the, called the idealist interpretation and the legalist interpretation. Now, the legalist interpretation is this, that what Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes is a checklist, a prerequisite for getting into the kingdom of heaven. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go down, and if we don't have them, we need to go back and try harder and then come back and try to get in. That doesn't work. None of us can attain these, obviously. The other interpretive option is to see them as just ideals. This is what would be really good if we could ever get there, but we can't, so we just keep on reading. We shouldn't pay attention to them. Now, both of these are errors. We are neither overburdened by what Jesus has for us in Matthew 5, nor are they so high and lofty that we can never think to achieve them. What Jesus has for us here in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes, and even more specifically, as we'll see on the sixth Beatitude, addresses our lives right here, right now, as people who have been united to Christ and live in God's kingdom. So if you can, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, found in Matthew chapter 5. I'll be reading the first 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching that has been brought down to us over centuries and millennia, the very words of Christ. And Father, to whom else can we go? Because Christ alone has the words of eternal life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and even eyes to see by faith what Christ has for us here and these precious words for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I mentioned that one of the mistaken interpretations of the Beatitudes was that they present this unrealistic and unattainable standard. And for the Beatitude, which concerns us tonight, blessed are the pure in heart, I think this might be the one that seems most unattainable, most unrealistic. Because when we read that, when you and I read that, we know immediately what the problem is, don't we? All the other Beatitudes, they seem to be somewhat manageable, or at least negotiable, right? Purity in heart, on the other hand, does not let us get away from anything. You can be meek, generally, but maybe not all the time. Maybe you hungered and thirsted for righteousness last Wednesday, but not today. But purity is one of those qualities that does not allow for any ambiguity. There is no mixture. You cannot be sort of pure, just like you cannot be very unique or sort of unique. You either are unique or you aren't. Same with purity. You either are pure or you're not. So the definition of pure excludes any both and. It's an either or. And so when posed in those terms, we realize all of a sudden, if we're paying attention, the immensity of what Jesus is saying to us in this verse. Now, we say things all the time that resemble purity of heart. We say that if someone is generally affable and kind, we say that they are good-hearted. If someone is magnanimous, virtuous, and the like, we say that they have a heart of gold. I'm from Nashville, and if someone doesn't realize that they're dumb, we say, bless their heart. (laughs) But we rarely, if ever, use the term pure in heart. Why? Because we know, we know that it simply wouldn't be true. We know fundamentally at our core that if people are like us, and they are, that they have things in their heart, you and I have things in our hearts, that if they were broadcast, would be devastating. The result of which we would never recover. And that is not hyperbole. And each one of us, at the very core of our being, not just of our emotions 
or the thoughts that flit through our minds uninvited and undesired, but rather at the soul level, there's something that makes us impure. Sorry, Jeremy. The great Russian writer, that was a lot louder. I'm not sure what I did there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in the first volume of Gulag Archipelago, said it this way, that if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? See, if only the problem were out there, if only the impurity was someone else's problem, if only we could clean ourselves up and make things right, then maybe this beatitude wouldn't be so overwhelming to us. Maybe we wouldn't be so tempted to shove it aside as an unrealistic standard and move on with our lives. But that's not the case. And so we come to this beatitude perhaps a little unsure of how, if at all, we can approach it in applying to our lives here and now. That's the point. It does apply to us. This is what it looks like. These things that Jesus tells us, it's what it looks like when people are brought into the kingdom of God. So how is it that this passage applies to us, where we sit in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, knowing that we are not pure in heart? How does it speak to us? Well, here I want to answer that question in three ways. First, I want to consider biblically the heart and what makes it pure. And then I want us to see, consider the pure heart that will see God. And then I want us to consider, third, the pure heart that has seen God. So again, the heart and its purity, biblically speaking, the pure heart that will see God, and the pure heart, finally, that has seen God. So first, what is the heart, according to the Bible, and what makes it pure? Well, in today's pop psychology, and generally since the Romantic era, the heart has generally been associated with emotion, desire, anything internal that can't be quantified or qualified. When we see someone leave it out in the field and give it everything they've got, we say that, that person has a lot of heart. When you break up with your significant other, you're, you're heartbroken. It's that romantic urge in us that separates thinking and feeling that segregates the heart to this realm of uncognitive, irrational feeling. But for the Bible, it's really not that clear cut. In Scripture, the heart does a number of things. It thinks, it feels, it chooses. This has led most biblical scholars to recognize that the heart in the Bible is really the basic seat of who you are as a person. It's your intellect. It's your will or your volition. And it's your emotions. It's all three. Everything wrapped up into one. That's your heart. One commentator said that the heart is the core of a person, that place from which we feel and think and determine our actions. So again, feeling, thinking, willing. If you're a Star Trek fan, think of it as Captain Kirk sitting in his chair, controlling everything that happens. That's your heart. 
What we might speak of it today is the self, even though that's problematic. Nevertheless, it talks about who you are fundamentally. That's to the heart. So if that's to the heart, your fundamental self, what is it that makes it pure? Well, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he famously said that the purity of heart is to will one thing. Is that, is that what the Bible means, though? Is it just myopia? Is it just single-mindedness that makes purity of heart? I don't think so. I think it's close, but it's not quite it. That's a difficult question. This phrase, pure heart, it doesn't appear all that often. Actually, in the Old Testament, it only appears three times. So the concept, possibly, is elsewhere. As a whole, if we consider how the Bible talks about a pure heart, though, it does include a single-mindedness, but it also includes integrity. It includes an identity between what's on the inside and what happens on the outside. But I think we can get even more specific than that, because I think Jesus is referencing a very specific passage in Scripture, a passage that we not only sang, but a passage that we read this evening. Most commentators will note that the most immediate reference that Jesus probably has in mind is Psalm 24. We, like I said, sang it and read it. I'm going to go back and reread that psalm, starting in verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Now, for the sake of brevity, I just want to highlight two things. First, notice that this whole psalm, at least the passage that we read, has to do with one thing in particular. It has to do with worship. The one who has a pure heart is is described as one who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. All these, in various ways, explicitly or implicitly, relate to the piety and the religious practices of the Jews of the day. Second, note the location of the pure-hearted person. What's he seeking after? Where is he? What's the place he's considering? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It's the temple. Possibly the tabernacle, since it's the Psalm of David, but it would be used in reference as well to the temple where God resides, where the people would come to worship God. Now, all these clues point, I'm going to suggest, in a direction of what it means to be pure in heart according to Scripture. And this definition that I have alliterates, so hopefully you'll remember it. So the purity of heart, I'm going to suggest to you, according to Scripture, is a controlling, first C, comprehensive, second C, and constant, third C, commitment. Commitment to and desire for the true worship of God. It's a controlling, comprehensive, and constant 
commitment to and desire for the true worship of God. To lay that out really quickly, first, purity of heart is controlling. Meaning this, that your concern for God's commands, your concern for worshiping God, your concern for obeying him, it controls everything in your life. It's like the GPS in your car tells you where to go, what to do, which turn to make. The thing that propels you forward is the concern for God's glory. The second thing is that it's comprehensive, meaning this, that there is no part in your life that that concern does not touch or characterize. When you put tincture in a glass of water, what happens? Every bit of that water is colored. That's the same for us. To be pure-hearted people means that everything in our lives is concerned directed towards God's glory, his true worship. Now, finally, this, that it's constant, that it never ceases. It does not ebb or flow. It doesn't wax or wane under the cultural pressures of the day. Rather, it's the worship of God. It's his glory that remains your north star, never moves that fixed point that remains there. To use a baseball analogy, and my apologies, to non-sports fans here. Are you going to buy that Yankees cap? Are you going to be a Cubs fan for 108 years, despite all the losing? This is characterized by Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Okay, so purity of heart, it's the controlling, comprehensive, and constant desire for God's true worship. Now, as I said these things, I hope, I hope you were doing your own little self-diagnostic to see where you stood. And I would imagine, for most of us, maybe for, hopefully, I think if we're honest, all of us, the results that we came up with probably were not what I described What is it that controls you? Is it professional ambition? Is it intellectual respectability? Or is it simply the tyranny of the urgent that drives your every move? What is the thing thing that touches everything in your life? Is it anxiety about finances? Is it the crushing insecurity that makes you think that maybe today is the day when everyone finds out that you're a fraud? What's the constant for you? Is it the fear of future? Fear of the future? Is it bitterness at those who have failed you? If you can answer those questions, then you'll be able to get a better sense, an accurate sense, of where it is that your heart actually is, what controls you, what covers your life, what is always there, nagging in the back of your mind, And that's your heart. So that's the heart, biblically speaking, and its purity. My second point is this. What about the pure heart that will see God? Why does Jesus add this here? And what does it have to say to us in our lives today? Remember, that's how we're approaching it, assuming that this is speaking to us as people of the living God. Now, it is significant that Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the pure in heart, and leave it at that. 
He gives a reason for that blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. This is the end of a pure heart. And it's not just a promise. It's both a promise and it's a blessing. The pure in heart are blessed. Those people whose basic disposition is bent towards God and his glory, they are blessed because they are given, finally, the desires of their hearts. The very thing they have sought after, the very thing that they prayed for, that is the very thing that they receive as their reward. Now, this sort of thing isn't brand new in the New Testament. Saints in the Old Testament constantly expressed the desire to see God. Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 11, verse 7, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Job, of course, famously said that I will look upon the Lord in the land of the living. And so the culmination of these Old Testament saints, the culmination of the Old Testament hope and desire is finalized, is completed, is consummated in the promise that Jesus gives to people who have a pure heart. Going back to my introduction, remember my pitfalls. It's the equal and opposite errors of legalism and idealism. The blessedness that Jesus awards the pure heart I think, is the reason that we can know that this isn't some unattainable standard. This isn't something that people are awarded even though they don't want it. Jesus does not say that purity of heart occurs when we see God, although there is some truth in that. But those who see God, they already love him. They already desire to see his face. They already desire to worship him. They already want to be in his presence. And if they didn't want those things, then what Jesus tells us here would not be a blessing. The purity of heart, purity of heart believers display here in this life is their training and their preparation for what they receive when they are in the presence of the one whom their souls love. It's the desire that controls the saints, that comprehensively covers their lives, that is constant in their hearts, that is finally satisfied when they see God face to face. Here's a more direct way of saying what I'm trying to say. If you do not love worshiping God here, if you do not love obeying his commands here, if you do not want to see him glorified and honored here, then what makes you think that you will enjoy it for all of eternity? If you are not striving for true worship and obedience right now, what leads you to think that you'll want to do it when you come face to face with the Lord? It's important to note the implications of what Jesus is saying here. Do you make God's glory, his honor, his praise, your heart's desire? Or do you expect that these sorts of things will just happen overnight? You'll just wake up and long to see God's face. That you'll just wake up and be someone who longs to see God glorified. Well, that's not the way that that happens. 
Are we putting to death the old man and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we putting aside the flesh and its desires and taking up the spirit and its desires? Because that's the way that we begin to cultivate purity of heart. Do we think about what is commendable, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise? Or is that something we'll get to next week? Will we consider Christ and the power of his resurrection? Or will we watch the next season of Better Call Saul? This I suggest to you. Not that there's anything wrong with Better Call Saul. I love that show. But this, is a, this I suggest to you is the first way that this beatitude speaks to us. It makes real, inescapable demands on our lives. Demands that are very clearly, when we're honest, not the natural bent of our hearts. We do not by nature want to glorify God. but by nature want to glorify ourselves. But that's not the only thing we should take from this beatitude because it does come with demands. But we're not left with simply a naked imperative, okay? Because gospel logic controls this as well. So thus far, we've considered the heart and what makes it pure. We've also considered the pure heart that will see God. And now I want us to think about the pure heart that has seen God. The pure heart that has, excuse me, the pure heart that has seen God. We've already covered that Jesus promises those who are pure in heart will see God, referring to a future state, specifically when the presence of God fills the whole earth and his final kingdom on earth is consummated. But if we just leave it there, we're missing something really fundamental. Because Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, like I said, Matthew chapter 4. But he isn't just the herald of the kingdom like John was. John is the one who comes before. We get a clear picture of this in Luke 17, because when the Pharisees come and ask him about the kingdom that's coming, Jesus responds by saying this, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look here it is, or look there. For behold, this is the important part, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What Jesus said that, he didn't mean that the kingdom of God existed in us, in our hearts, in each one of us. Nor did he mean necessarily that the kingdom is somehow all of a sudden taking hold of the world, although he did mean that in some ways. What he meant was something far more extraordinary. He meant that he himself, standing in their midst, was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst, and I am right here in the midst of you. He is the reign of God, meaning, of course, that Jesus is God. And in Matthew, that same logic applies, that Jesus is the herald of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, and the kingdom itself, all rolled into one. And so if we take that and apply it to this beatitude... What do we get? I want you to think about this with me. We have God himself promising that if people are pure in heart, they will see God. While God himself is standing in front of them. They're looking at God while he promises them that they will see his face. 
Now, this doesn't mean that whoever looks at Jesus all of a sudden saw God. Plenty misunderstood him. Plenty didn't know him, didn't see him for who he was. Even his own disciples struggled to understand his message. But to all who looked upon him in faith, Jesus revealed the Father to them. And that was the whole mission of his, to reveal the Father to the world. John says that he has made him known. So here's where the gospel comes into play. By nature, you and I are children of wrath, hated by others and hating one another, Paul says, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And our hearts were not pure. In fact, we said in our hearts that God doesn't exist. But before we repented, before we decided to clean ourselves up, before we even realized that there was something wrong with us, Jesus came to us. God himself came to us and let us see him, even though nothing in us desired it or deserved it. It was simply grace. And it was the kingdom of God coming and manifesting itself in your life, in my life, in the lives of millions of believers for the past 2,000 years. And he not only showed his love for us by forgiving us, but he showed his love for us by giving us actually the ability to do what he commands. So if you felt oppressed by the demands of this beatitude, I want you to feel the freedom that it offers as well. Because God came to you in your impurity, he forgave it, and then he enabled you to pursue a pure heart. This is what Calvin calls the double gift that we have in Christ, justification and sanctification, forgiveness of sins and the power to live out God's commands. All of this is in the Lord Jesus. And because you are in him, because you have been united to him by faith, the promise of the gospel is not only a righteousness that is not yours. It is the promise of a spirit that is not yours too. You are given a new heart. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. You died to sin and you live unto righteousness. The question is, do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you know that you as a Christian can have victory over sin? That you can walk in purity of heart? Not because you're perfect. Not because you've got it all figured out, but rather because you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. It's the sight of Christ that turned Saul into Paul. It made the man who murdered Christians count it all as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that he might gain Christ. You see, the gospel, it makes martyrs out of murderers, makes saints out of sinners, and by the grace of God, it makes pure-hearted people out of people like you and me. See, our hearts in this world are far from perfect. I think you know that. I know that. But Christ's words, even in this blessing, offer both a significant challenge and an overwhelming comfort. 
The significant challenge is the call to be pure in heart, to be people so radically concerned with God and his glory that nothing else can distract us. But right where the challenge ends is where the overwhelming comfort comes in. Because in Christ Jesus, you are already considered pure-hearted. And by the Spirit, you can actually live like it. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That people like us get to be considered citizens of your kingdom. People like us are not only counted in Christ, but are empowered more and more to die unto sin and live unto godliness. Father, we do not deserve the grace and the mercy that you pour out upon us, but we want to be people who love you and who serve you. And we pray that you would empower us more and more by the Spirit to walk in a manner pleasing to you. Lord, help us purify our hearts because we are so sinful. We need not just forgiveness, but we need the power of Christ himself living in us. We pray that you would now seal this word to our hearts, help us and strengthen us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.